Luke chapter 1, we'll be starting verse 26. Before we get into our passage for today, I'm sure you probably know this, that Christmas is arguably the most widely celebrated of all the world's holidays. I did a, uh, a quick search on Google Images. If you've ever used Google Images and you type in something, say what I did was I just typed in the word Christmas, and you get, uh, boy, <laughs> you, get, you get a large number of photos and pictures. I've given you just a, qu- a quick little sampling here of some of them. And uh, that's quite revealing. You get, you, give a, you get a world's perspective for the most part when you do a Google Images search on uh, what they think Christmas is about. And obviously, doing that kind of a search shows you there's a huge misunderstanding about what really Christmas is about. As you also probably know, other holidays honor people or events. Obviously, the Queen's birthday, for example, I mean, that's honoring the Queen of England. But Christmas is, is not like other holidays. Christmas honors a divine person and remembers a divine event. It doesn't celebrate human achievement. It's not honoring uh, the, the fallen of wars or anything like that. It's, it's God's accomplishment. It's all about what God did. Most of the stuff done during this particular season does not reflect, sadly, the true meaning of Christmas, does it? Christmas isn't about Christmas trees or gifts under trees or fine food like you see there in that picture. That's not what it's about. There's nothing man-made about the Christmas story. In fact, it's all God's doing, isn't it? It's the most compelling story in history. It's why we love reading passages like Luke chapter 1 and 2, and why they're very precious to us. It's God's doing. It's the most compelling story in history. And those who truly celebrate Christmas do so by remembering this truth, that God the Father sent his only son to become a man, and there was a purpose in him becoming a man, and that purpose was so that he could die for the sins of everyone who puts their faith in him. Here in Luke chapter 1, we have the, what I would call the beginning of the Christmas story. And first of all, we see here, starting in Luke 1, verse 26, we see it's God's doing. God sent the angel Gabriel. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. You notice the passage here, the text in verse 26 says it's in the sixth month doesn't tell you a whole lot of details, but it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Well, you, you read the previous context, you'll find that Elizabeth uh, became pregnant with uh, John the Baptist. And the angel Gabriel was sent from God with this most significant birth announcement that, that the world has ever known. There's no more important birth announcement than this. Did you notice, by the way, where the angel delivered this crucial message? It says there in verse 26... 
And it's interesting what it doesn't say as well. It doesn't say the birth announcement goes to Jerusalem, does it? No, it doesn't say that. By the way, the, the map here on the screen shows you that uh, Nazareth was up in the region of Galilee. Galilee was a region above uh, Judea. Nazareth, uh, well, Gabriel says that, that it went to this very small village in this region of Galilee. Nazareth, by the way, was about 100 miles or about 160 kilometers north of Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem kind of looked down on the people up there in Galilee. So why this obscure, insignificant place? Why would God send one of his greatest messengers, the angel Gabriel, to this little insignificant place called Nazareth? Well, if you remember from our study in the book of Matthew, that that region up there was uh, often associated with Gentiles. I think one of the reasons is because God's choice of Nazareth reveals that he is not just the savior of Israel, he is the savior of the entire world, of all races. When you read Revelation 4 and 5, you see that God saves people from all tongues. Number two, we see here that God chose Mary. Of all the people he could have chosen... In the world, he chose Mary. Look at verse 27. It says this about her. It it says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The announcement of Jesus' miraculous birth comes to a young Jewish girl. And the Bible describes a few things about her. We don't, there's not a lot, but let's look at the few things the Bible does say about her. And the first description the Bible gives about her is that Mary is described as a virgin. Hopefully you know what that is, but uh, in case you don't, let me just be crystal clear here. The word virgin there in your Bible, since sadly uh, liberals love to attack this particular word, the virgin birth of Christ is one of those fundamentals of the faith it's an essential that must be believed by all christians but sadly it's been attacked over the years so let me make sure we're crystal clear on this the word virgin refers to a person who has never had sexual relations and by the way it would never be used to describe a married woman so she's not married and she's never had sexual relations with any man that's who this mary this young woman is So the angel's announcement comes to her. Number two, we also see that Mary's described as betrothed there in that verse. Uh, You may not be familiar with that word, but uh, betrothal is more than just getting engaged. Okay, If you're married, I'm assuming you got engaged at some point. uh, You decided that uh, you were going to marry your your, uh, spouse-to-be, uh, and so you had this this time period, whatever how long that was, where you weren't married, but you were you were you know semi committed to this person. Well, betrothal is more than an engagement. It was it was actually a legally binding engagement that was only breakable by divorce. That's how serious it was. In ancient Israel, girls, by the way, were usually engaged at the age of twelve or thirteen. 
For you girls who are that age or a little older, just think about that for a moment. Getting engaged at age 12 or 13. And your parents would do that for you. And then you would be, you would be married after a one-year betrothal period, this serious engagement period. Unlike what often happens today, by the way, couples did not live together during that time period, and they would certainly not have sexual relations during the betrothal period. And during that particular year, the betrothal period, the girl was to prove her faithfulness and purity, and the boy would prepare a home for his fiancée. And then when that particular year was up, they would have a seven-day wedding feast, after which the couple would would consummate their marriage. So we see Mary's a virgin. She is betrothed. And it says who she's betrothed to. She's betrothed to Joseph. Who's Joseph? Well, it says that Mary's engaged to a descendant of David. This is significant. Joseph was by lineage one of the descendants of King David. Although he was not Jesus' natural father, he was adopted into this family, and so by adoption, Jesus is made the legal heir to David's line. Now, why is this important? Why is the Bible mentioning these things? These these things are not just fluff. Okay, All these little words you see in the Scriptures are very important. And the reason it's important is because the genealogy establishes Christ's claim to the throne of David. He's Joseph's legal heir. And and adoption, by the way, was just as serious as being a natural-born son. And and even in Roman law, it was was even considered, for many of the Romans, even more significant than a natural son. We, We see another description or I should say a lack of description, actually, here is that we see in this passage that Mary is just described with only the name of Mary. There's nothing else mentioned about her. It just says Mary. I don't know if you see the significance of that, but Luke added nothing here in this passage that would set her apart as a noteworthy woman. God didn't send Gabriel to Mary because she's noteworthy. There's nothing significant about her, other than the fact that she's also in the line of King David. So like Joseph, Mary traces her ancestry back to David. So in every legitimate sense, what we see here is that Jesus Christ was the son of David, and he was born to be Israel's true king. Now, I will remind you, he didn't come to fulfill that during his first coming. But you must look for it during his second coming. When Christ comes the second time, he will be the true king. So number three, we see here that God blessed Mary. God blessed Mary. Look at uh, verse 28. Verse 28. And he came to her, that's Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Let me just point out a few things from this passage. First of all, notice there in verse 28, the phrase came to her. 
That implies that Mary's in her house when Gabriel comes to her and the angel appears to her. She's in her house. Uh, she's during, remember, this is her betrothal period. She's not married yet. Apparently she's, apparently, she's going about her normal household duties, working away there. Apparently, she's also alone, and uh, the angel comes to her. What's the first thing the angel says? Well, the first word to her was, was a common, everyday salutation. He says greetings in our English translation here. Greetings was, simpler, was similar to just walking up to someone and saying, hello. That's the first thing he says. Just hello, greetings. And by addressing Mary here, by the way, as favored one, Gabriel indicated that she was to become the recipient of God's grace. Now, I want to be crystal clear here. There's nothing intrinsically worthy about her that's setting her above other believers. Mary was not perfectly holy, as some might think. And just like all people, she was a sinner in need of God's grace. We can see that right here in our text and in other texts. She's not perfectly holy. She's a sinner. Now, sadly, this particular salutation has been confiscated to form the basis of the Roman Catholic prayer you you may be familiar with called Ave Maria. Otherwise, in English, it's called Hail Mary. Now, the false premise of that particular prayer, or and, and it's often sung as well, is that Mary possesses full grace. And as a result of possessing full grace, then she's able to bestow grace on other people. By the way, if you don't want to take my word for it, then just listen to a couple popes, what they had to say, all right? By the way, I'm not, in, I'm not in agreement with these popes, but you need to understand, this is, this is what Roman Catholic theology teaches. Pope Pius X had this to say about Mary. I'm quoting here from one of his writings. It says this, that Mary is the dispenser of all the gifts that our Savior purchased for us by his death and by his blood. The supreme minister of the distribution of graces, the distributor of the treasures of his merits, end quote. And he wasn't the only one to say stuff like this. Pope Leo XIII obviously agreed, and he says this, quote, Mary is the intermediator through whom is distributed unto us this immense treasure of mercies gathered by God. There was also Pope Pius IX, and he said that Mary is the seed of all divine graces, adorned with all gifts of the Holy Spirit, an almost infinite treasury, an inexhaustible abyss of these gifts. End quote. And I could go on reading many more Catholic theologians that say the same sort of a thing. Now, let me comment on those. Do you know what that particular belief is? This isn't original with me, but that... That particular false, unbiblical view of Mary is what some call Mariology. Mariology is just another form of idolatry. It's the worship of someone who is not God. In this case, a woman named Mary. Thus, Roman Catholic theology, what it's doing is actually blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ by worshiping someone who is not God. I hope you have a problem with that. 
But what do we see in Scripture? In reality, Mary is just a humble, redeemed sinner. She's not sinless from her conception. There's no such thing as the immaculate conception. Uh, Since Romans 3, verse 10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 goes on to say, we're all sinners. We're born into sin. You you were born a sinner. Everyone is. And nor is Mary the co-redeemer of the human race, as Catholic theology teaches, because Romans 3.24 says that sinners are justified by the gift of His grace, and notice it says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Mary's not mentioned in that verse, is she? She does not hear and answer prayers. Some Catholics like to think that, hey, you pray to Mary because she's the queen of heaven and she's going to tell her son, Jesus Christ, what to do. Whoa. That's blasphemy. That's heresy. She doesn't hear prayers. She doesn't answer prayers. And she's certainly not interceding for anyone since 1 Timothy 2, 5 says there is only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I want you to look at the end of verse 28, because our text clearly shows us who Mary is. It says in verse 28 there, the Lord is with you. The Lord is, that phrase, the Lord is with you, speaks of God's enabling of her. She couldn't do anything without God's enabling. It also reinforces the truth that Mary is just a recipient of God's grace. She can't bestow it on anyone. She's not the dispenser of God's grace to other people. Who is then? Well, the answer is, God is the bestower of grace. He's the one who enables people to accomplish his will. And in verse 29, we see that Mary was greatly troubled by this news. Why would she be greatly troubled? Well, she's she's troubled, I think, because she knew that she was a sinner... And, and she's not understanding why God had favored her. What, why her? And again, this is showing her humility. So what does Gabriel do? He tries to calm her by telling her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. So it's clear that Gabriel had come with the, this message of blessing here. He's not coming to judge her. It's a blessing. So next we see in our passage here that uh, God became man. God became man. Look at verse 31. Of course, he didn't become man yet, but notice what verse 31 says. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, for the first time, Mary heard what the work of God in her life was going to be. This is the first time, as far as we know. And and, and I'm assuming that she is shocked by this news. Mary, I mean, think about it. This is way back in the age before there was ever such a thing as as surrogate mothers and in vitro fertilization and and, and the sort of stuff we have going on today. Mary knew there's only one way that she could conceive a son. That was the natural, normal way. It had to be through sexual relations with a man. 
She'd never heard of another way. And up to that point, there hadn't been any other way. She also knew that she had not had relations with the man. And so the concept of a, of a pregnant virgin was something that was totally inconceivable to her. She's just mystified, confused. It didn't make sense. So next up, what I want you to see here is, and, and I want you to notice is how Gabriel, what he's doing here, he's summarizing the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the angel's message here, uh, little phrase by phrase, word by word, if you will. The angel's message, first of all, we see is, is this, that the incarnation will be in a man. And by incarnation, that's one of those theological words, incarnate, in flesh. God comes in flesh. So the incarnation will be in a man. We see in verse 31, that you're going, the angel says, you're going to bear a son. A son. We also see that the man's name was to be Yeshua. Yeshua is kind of how the Israelis would say it. Jesus. Jesus, by the way, Yeshua uh, means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the, the Lord, all capital letters, Lord of the Old Testament, referring to the Trinity. He is Yahweh saves. That's what his name literally meant. We also see, number three, he will be great there in verse 32. It says, he will be great. And, and notice that's all it says. It just uses that description, great. In other words, Jesus' life will define great. And notice that his greatness is unqualified here. He's not great as, he's just great. He's not compared to anything. It's totally unqualified. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Jesus is great in and of himself. His greatness is something that's actually intrinsic to his very nature. He doesn't need anything else to make him great because that's who he is. So he's not drawing from any source outside of himself. Jesus himself is great. Number four, we also see in verse 32 that he will be the son of God. He'll be the son of God. The fact that Mary's baby was to be called the Son of the Most High is, is pointing to his equality with Yahweh. He is equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, you need to understand something about Semitic thought here. A son was, was an exact image, or some might say a carbon copy of his father. You ever heard that phrase? Hey, you know, some, sometimes you look at someone's son and you say, and you might tell that, that, that uh, boy, hey, you're a spitting image of your, your father, right? We, we talk that way. Well, Jesus is more than that. <laughs> He's, as Hebrews says, an exact representation of the father. The phrase son of there in your uh, verse 32 was often used to refer to one who possessed his father's qualities, and we kind of talk like this as well when we're, we're talking about uh, children. Sometimes you say, hey, you got your father's eyes, your father's nose. And uh, sometimes we even get silly sometimes. And, hey, you got your father's cheeks, and you pinch the cheeks, and your hair, and all this. We start talking this way. Well, Jesus, he, he had it all. all. All of his father's qualities. So here's the point. Christ possesses the glory of God. He possesses the glory of God. He wasn't just a man. He is the God-man. 
He's both at the same time. Now, do you understand the good news here? This is good news. We, we get a picture of the gospel here in this passage. Now, here's, here's the good news. Since every one of us have broken God's laws, we've broken all of God's laws. What does that make you? Well, that makes you a sinner. In fact, you're a guilty sinner, deserving of eternal death in the lake of fire. Every one of us are in that boat. The good news is that this particular child would be God in human flesh, perfectly righteous in everything that he thought, said, and did. In fact, I often like to say he lived the perfect life that I could never live and you could never live. However, what he also did is he died as a sinless sacrifice. He provided himself as the substitute for sinners because Sinners can't die for sinners. That, that doesn't work. And then he offered his atoning death to save sinners from their sins, paying the penalty for sin. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because we know after Christ died and was buried three days later, he arose. He didn't remain dead. And then he, after being on the earth for a little while, he went to heaven. And he's now still in heaven awaiting his return to reign over his kingdom. Let me ask you, my friend, are you ready? Are you ready? Christ is coming. And if you do not know Christ, you've never put your faith in Christ, condemnation is coming. Judgment day is coming to everyone who does not put their faith in Christ. But the good news is that one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 8.1, says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So are you in Christ? The only safe place to be. The only way to avoid judgment day and the lake of fire is to be in Christ. But we also see here in verses 32 and 33 that Christ fulfills the Davidic covenant. Not all of it yet, but one day he will. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. Let's just think about the Davidic covenant here. You need to go back to the book of Samuel and read about that if you want to understand that. But we see here aspects of the Davidic covenant. Uh, Number one, there's an eternal house. An eternal house. Jesus reigns over the nation of Israel as her king. And that's actually going to start at his second coming, during the 1,000 millennial period. And then his reign is going to continue on into the eternal state. At the moment, uh, it doesn't appear like Christ is reigning, is it? Well, that's yet to come. But there's also an eternal throne. Jesus is David's descendant. We see that by legal right. We see it by, by physical right. And we we know the scriptures say that this king is going to sit on David's throne, and that's going to happen as well during the millennium. So there's an eternal house, an eternal throne, but number three, there is an eternal kingdom. An eternal kingdom. Now Mary would not have understood all of the aspects of this. Certainly all of scripture wasn't written yet. But the angel is speaking here to, to her of the Messiah, this, this anointed one who had been promised, by the way, for, for many, many years, hundreds of years, for a long, long time. Uh, 
certainly she knew of a promised Messiah. Certainly Mary at least read parts of the Old Testament and knew that the Old Testament was speaking of someone who was to come, who hadn't come yet. So this is talking about that eternal kingdom as well, but it's also talking about an eternal descendant, the one who would not die. And so my friend, let me ask you, how are you responding to King Jesus? By the way, how you respond to King Jesus is going to determine your eternal destiny. It will. So how are you responding to Jesus? Number five we see in this passage that God was questioned by Mary. Look at the question here in verse 34. At least in the English language it's worded as a question. It says in verse 34 that Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? How can I conceive of the Messiah since I am a virgin? By the way, Mary's question wasn't reflecting doubt. She believed what the angel told her, but she didn't understand how this could happen. You ever been been in that kind of a situation? You know what God wants you to do, but you don't know how that's going to happen? Well, that's where she is here. And it must be remembered that miracles were something that were extremely rare, particularly at this time. And by Mary's day, there had been uh, no divine revelation, no miracles for approximately 400 years. The, the, she's, she's in that intertestamental period. For about 400 years, God was pretty much silent. No miracles and no divine revelation. So her question was really a request, if you will, more like a request for an explanation. May I have an explanation of how is this going to happen? Well, God had a plan in verse 35. Look at the plan in verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here we see the Holy Spirit playing a very important role in Luke's story, as, as, as well as the other Gospels. By the way, there's not the slightest suggestion in this text or, or anywhere else in Scripture, by the way, of human sexual activity going on here. There is no human sexual activity involved in the conception of Jesus Christ. And that's important to note, because if you read you know, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, or any other rubbish out there, liberal theologians, uh, people who might call themselves scholars... You know, they'll, they'll come up with all sorts of things that, that Jesus is a result of a sexual relationship with a Roman soldier or someone else. Some of even, even Jews were, and, and Pharisees were, were calling Jesus Christ bad names. Many of them didn't believe in the virgin birth, even during, even during Jesus' day. And so what we see here, in, in fact, in verse 35, it says that the power of the Most High will overshadow Mary. What does that mean? The words most high are depicting God as a sovereign, all-powerful ruler of heaven and earth. The God who made and upholds the universe would create life in Mary's womb. That's why God's using those words. God's telling Mary and all of us, God's going to do the work. That's the plan. The word overshadow, by the way, means to surround Metaphorically, it, was, it meant to influence. 
What's the point? What's the point? Well, here's the point. The creative influence of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would overshadow, would influence Mary to produce this child in her womb. It wasn't Mary's doing or a man's doing. It was God's doing. And this is important. The virgin birth, of course, is a fundamental of the faith. And the virgin birth miracle here actually guarantees that at least two things would be true of Mary's son. Let me just highlight a few here for you. And we see it right here in verse 35. Number one, notice it calls Jesus holy. So Jesus was a holy child. The virgin birth guarantees that Jesus is holy. That's what it says in verse 35, right? And by the way, the, the word holy uh, means that Jesus is unique. He is distinct. He is unlike any other infant that has ever been born. And one of the very important parts of, of holiness is, of course, that he is sinless. And that's one of the things that makes him unique. He's like all other babies that have been born on planet Earth. He's sinless. He wasn't born with a sin nature. Number two, it also guarantees that Jesus was the Son of God. Notice it says that as well in verse 35. Now, how can that be? How can this physical baby be the Son of God? Well, his nature is exactly the same as God the Father. We've already mentioned that, right? He's the Son of God. He's the exact representation of the Father. Now, the beautiful thing is that in Jesus, God is seen in human flesh. That's kind of like what Emmanuel means, right? God with us. And then in in the next verse, we're going to see that God actually gave Mary a sign, even though she didn't ask for a sign. A sign, but uh, it is helpful sometimes to have all doubt removed, isn't it? So let's look at the sign that, that's in verse 36. God actually gives Mary a sign here in verse 36. It says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So God was gracious to Mary here, right? Of course he was. And, and how's he gracious? He's giving this sign to strengthen her faith. That sign, what, what does it involve? Well, it's, it's an involving uh, a rather older relative. In fact, uh, a very old relative. And, and the shocking news, which Mary's hearing apparently for the first time here, was her relative had conceived in her old age. She's beyond those years of childbearing. Mary was well aware that Elizabeth was barren and past childbearing age. She knew that. And she must have been amazed that one who is, notice it calls her actually barren here in our passage, is now six months pregnant. So it's referring to Elizabeth, the one who's six months pregnant. And even though Elizabeth's miracle was different from hers, it must have strengthened Mary. And it's showing that God is the one who is still able to perform miracles. The God who can still perform miracles can do this miracle in Mary. So the sign provided an anchor for Mary, some stability there. And it was very encouraging, I'm sure. And then number eight, we, we see here that Mary, or sorry, not Mary, God is sovereign. God is sovereign here. Look at verse 37. The angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. So try to put yourself in Mary's sandals here for a moment. 
You know, it's one thing for somebody to say what's actually going to happen, right? We get all kinds of people saying things today, don't we? And, but can they actually back it up with their actions, right? Now, that's nice. You know, somebody make all, they make all kinds of deals, but can, can they actually make it happen? Well, what Mary heard was humanly impossible, right? To, to conceive a child without sexual relations with a man was humanly impossible. So Gabriel reminds her that because of God's unlimited power, nothing will be impossible with him. Nothing. God can do that. And how can that be? How can that be? Well, the answer is because God's power knows no limits, right? Well, there is a certain limit. God is bound by by his own nature, his own character. So there is a certain limit to to God, of course. But he's not bound by the the laws of nature that he created. All those laws of nature he created, like gravity, he's not bound by that sort of stuff. within, Within nature, we seem to think that the only way a child can be born is through sexual relations or you know, science messing around with those sort of things. But God can accomplish anything that's consistent with his holy nature and purposes. And of course, this is one of them. Well, how does Mary respond to all this? Well, we we see here in verse 38 that God received total allegiance from Mary. Total allegiance was given to God. Look at verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be to me according to your word. And then it just says the angel departed from her. By the way, that word there in verse 38, servant, literally means slave. Mary is calling herself a slave of God. Mary's humble response demonstrated her willing submission to God's purpose, doesn't it? Of course it does. She's, what does she see herself? She, she sees herself as nothing more than a just, just a willing, humble slave. Mary's response says a lot. She didn't, by the way, it's interesting what it doesn't say here. She didn't ask about Joseph. Now again, try to put yourself in Mary's sandals for a moment. All right? If you're a woman... And all of a sudden, some messenger says, okay, you're going to be pregnant, and you know you've never had sexual relations with a man, and you've never had sexual relations with the man whom you're engaged to, your mind's going to, go, you're going to, your mind's going to be drawn to the man whom you're engaged to, right? You're going to be thinking, okay, wait a minute, what is he going to think? Because he also knows that he has not had sexual relations with her, Mary's not asking about Joseph, who, of course, would have known the baby was not his. Thus, Mary would have to, uh, in the process of this, of course, would be facing the shame of being an unwed mother. It would come across as the appearance of having committed adultery, which that's what it would come across as in that particular society. And by the way, the punishment, you remember in the Old Testament, the punishment for adultery was stoning. You were to be stoned to death. But what does Mary do? We don't see her arguing with God. We don't see her questioning God at this point. She just says, I am God's slave. May God's will be done. Humble, obedient faith. 
We see Mary willingly trusting God to defend her. And does God defend her? Of course he does. God defends her. And and let me just show you this in case you don't remember. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, here's what it says. Mary's husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is the prophet Isaiah. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So we see God vindicating Mary here. God defended her. What do we learn about God from this text? Well, there's a number of things we can learn about God from this particular text. Remember, whenever you read the stories of Scripture, those things are are declarations of God by God. God wants you to learn a number of things about himself in these stories. So let me just highlight three things for you. Number one, what God promises will be fulfilled. What God promises will be fulfilled. The God of the universe makes promises, and you can guarantee it that he's going to keep those promises. In fact, the Old Testament's filled with promises. The Old Testament, we see that God made heaps of promises. The New Testament's all about God keeping his promises. We've seen many of those promises fulfilled in Christ's first coming. Not all the promises have been fulfilled yet. So the good news is, in Christ's second coming... The rest of the promises will be fulfilled. Do you know all of God's promises, though? Are you reading them? Are you paying attention to God's promises? Highlight them, think about them, meditate on them. Let me encourage you to read them, but don't just read them. Study them, study those promises. And then, of course, you need to believe those promises. And one of the things those promises should do to us, they should comfort us. Number two, what else can we learn about God? We see that God accomplishes his purposes through his willing and obedient slaves. Let me ask you, are you resting in God's sovereign purposes? What what are you resting in? I hope you're resting in God's sovereign purposes. Are you humbly submitting yourself as an obedient slave to God? You should. You should. You should do. That's what Mary does. That's the right response. Number three, we see that God is still doing his work today. (laughs) For about 400 years, it appeared that that God went to sleep. Or God just kind of winds the clock of the universe up, as some would say, and just kind of lets it go on its own. No. (laughs) Absolutely not. God reigns supreme over his creation. He upholds all of his creation. He is still working. Now, you may never see a visible miracle, you know, something like Mary saw here. But, my friend, God is always working 
in his people. Spiritually working in his people. Okay? Salvation is a miracle of God. Sanctification is a miracle of God. And every time a believer goes to heaven, glorification is, is, is going to be taking place. That is a miracle of God. There's some application for us here as well. Let's just think about four, four things to put on here on the screen for you. My friend, you must cultivate a humble heart, as Mary does here. Mary did. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. So which one are you? Which one are you? You proud, arrogant, stubborn, or are you humble? Can you say as Mary did, you know, may may God's will be done to me, to others. I, I will still love God no matter what comes my way. Even if that means shame, I will still love God. I will still trust Him. I will still be loyal to Him. Even if it means people stoning me to death, I will still be humble. Number two, you must nurture a reflective heart that meditates on God's Word. One of those things that must have comforted Mary was was the Old Testament covenants and promises and the, the prophecies that were there in the Old Testament. She knew those. And Psalm 1 says that we are to meditate on God's word day and night so that we can be like the tree that's planted by the rivers of water, that we'd be strong and those roots of our life would go deep so that we would flourish and prosper. You must do the same. Number three, you must have a believing heart modeled after Mary's heart. Mary believed the promises and the prophecies of Scripture. Do you? Do you believe those? I mean, are you willing, do you believe them so much that if a gun's pointed to your head or something like that, you'd say, yes, I still believe I'm willing to die for that. Number four, you must have a submissive heart, just as Mary does here in verse 38. Let it be to me according to your word. I am your slave. (laughs) She's totally submissive totally loyal to God no matter what comes. The Bible says we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart. Not not just 99% of it, all of our heart. Trust in the Lord with all our heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Instead, in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. That's what a submissive heart does. Totally trusting in God with all of your heart. My friend, do you have that humble reflective, believing, submissive heart, as Mary does. I know it's hard. You can't do it in your own strength. Okay? And if you're an unbeliever, you, you, have, you, have, you, don't, you don't even have a shot. <laughs> it's impossible. And even if you are a believer, it's still impossible with the Holy Spirit's enabling. God's grace must do this work in you, my friend. You cannot do this in your own strength. You must abide in the vine that is in Jesus Christ. Because without him, you can do absolutely nothing. But with him, you can do everything. So by God's grace, my prayer is that we would be like Mary. We would trust the promises of God, believe the prophecies of Scripture. And may God's word create in us a humble heart, a reflective heart, a believing heart, and a submissive heart.